Hi there, Matthew here. Before we get into this episode, I just wanted to let you know about an exciting offer we currently have at Burn Production Services. If you're an event organizer with an upcoming corporate conference, sales meeting, or experiential event, this one's for you. For a limited time, we're covering the shipping costs for your next event to help make your production a whole lot easier and more cost-effective. So be sure to check us out at burnproductionservices.com and enjoy the benefits of this exclusive offer. Okay, let's get into the episode. The value of an event is almost, is largely in the eye of the person that it's attending it. Like, I can declare that a thing has value that I have produced, and if the attendee says, I got nothing out of that, was it valuable? Probably not. Or it wasn't as valuable as I thought it was. And so really understanding like what is valuable, like when this person who's attending leaves, what do they need or want to take with them that is valuable to them that will make them feel good or okay or happy that they invested their time, their energy, their money. Welcome to Production Value Matters, the business event podcast, brought to you by Burn Production Services. Here, we explore the different ways business events can bring value to your organization, the latest technological advances in the event space, as well as providing you with actionable strategies to make a business event a success. Let's create an exceptional event experience. Welcome to another episode of Production Value Matters, the Business Events Podcast. And today, I'm really privileged to have my good friend, Jody Collin, on the show. Jody is the current director of meetings and events for Great Clips, a company she's been with for just over a year now. And starting as an events coordinator and climbing the ranks to the international president of the International Live Events Association, which is where we met. Jody has made an impact on the events industry over the last 25 years, and I'm super stoked to have her on the podcast today. So welcome, Jody. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, absolutely. So let's go to the beginning. Did your interest in the events industry begin during your education, or was there a pivotal moment that brought you down that path? I think if I looked at it in retrospect, I can point to many, many situations where I was very drawn towards the events environment. My brain just kind of naturally works that way. And I was always sort of the person on the events committee in high school and college. And like I was doing all of those things. But I'm old enough that when I was in college, nobody was talking about events as a job that you could do and make money at. It was like a thing you did on the side. And it wasn't until I had moved to the Twin Cities and was working in my first marketing job that I was sort of accidentally invited. Well, it wasn't even me that was invited. It was one of my colleagues that was invited to an ILEA meeting that David Merrill was speaking at and was intrigued enough because I was doing events as part of my job there amongst many other kind of marketing-related activities. And it sounded interesting. They were bringing this designer event planner from Los Angeles. And I thought, this seems cool. And I asked my boss if I could go. And I just sort of had that quintessential light bulb moment sitting in the room. And it was the moment where you realize, 
I love this part of my job and I'm now just realizing you could do this and make money at it. And I have to have this guy tell me how to do this. And I've told this story a hundred times to David and to everybody else. But yeah, he took the time and sat and talked to me and pointed my ship in the right direction. And I just dove headfirst in and kind of just changed my whole life and career. And the rest is, as they say, history. So yeah, absolutely. Both of us are old enough to, as you said, know a time where events wasn't actually an industry. My personal level, I went to theater school and I learned there, which is where a lot of the people in this industry originally came from. And so it's interesting to see now the levels of education and programs that are available for people who are interested in the industry and to reflect as longhorn professionals as ourselves that that wasn't available to us. And so it's interesting to see. And so it's interesting that you say a thing to make money in. We just went through a protracted two and a half to three year period where the industry was disrupted because of the pandemic. To say the least. <laughs> to say the least. So how do you think events have changed over the last few years since the pandemic? Oh, gosh. In like a thousand different ways. And in some ways, I felt like there was a lot of just astronomical change in short segments that have sort of reverted back to more familiar space. And a lot of things that I do think like really did provide some lasting change. I think the way that we think about how people engage in content has changed a lot, especially if you're doing anything where there is going to be any intention for content to be used or provided virtually in real time and or made available in kind of on-demand format. I think the way in which, at least in the roles that I've been in, both in my current role and the one before that, in my last job, I did a lot of hybrid, even after like fully virtual for two and a half years everything virtual and then transitioned into hybrid. And I think we had to really think differently about how our audience was going to ingest that content, how they were going to engage with that content, what it looked like, what it felt like, the types of people that we were using, how my team was working. I think the role that I play in the production of events changed in ways that were really positive because I had to really get in to understand flow and stage production in a way that I don't think I had spent as much time investing in previously. And I think there's been a lot of that that has really stuck that I think is exciting and provides a lot of long-term benefit. In my current role, we do mostly in-person, but we think a lot more about how someone is going to make a decision to come to an event and the value of that has remained really important. I think that was underlined hardcore when we were going through all of this. But in my last job, the thing that I felt was so interesting that sort of a positive outcome that came out of COVID was I was working for a medical organization and we were finding that it was really difficult 
for as many people as we wanted to be able to come in person. Like they have to keep clinics open. Like they can't send their whole team. They're never going to be able to send their whole teams. But it was really important, very critical to their jobs kind of information. And it had always been cost prohibitive or, I mean, to be really honest, logistically prohibitive, or we just weren't invested enough to take those steps. And now, because we know how to do it, it's so much easier to be able to provide that content. And the amount of people that we were able to reach from doing that just grew so much that I think that provided we got such good feedback on that, like the ability for them to get access to that information was really important. And I hope at least a lasting change that will live for a bit in those kinds of spaces. I like to quote, there's a line from Austin Powers where he he realizes at the end of the film that we used to live in this world of unlimited freedom and rebelling against a time of unlimited responsibility. And now we're in a time of freedom and responsibility, and it's really great. And I use that quote just to say, that's what I love about the industry coming out of the pandemic, is that a lot of people have that realization that it's not one size fits all. As you said, for that medical client, it's the virtual, the on-demand is really critical to be able to reach your audience, considering that it's hard logistically for them to get there into a live experience. Which isn't to say that a live experience isn't worthwhile or the virtual or the hybrid, but it's this time in the industry where a lot of strategy is shifting and it's okay and it's exciting and it's brand new rather than, oh, we put some uplights in some drape and we were done kind of thing. So I get really excited about that. Yeah, I think what is really compelling to me about that is I think it forced us all to be like really honest about what our audience needed. And or was able to participate in. I saw uh, so much narrative during COVID and even as everything was kind of transitioning back to hybrid of like, oh, we're always going to be in virtual or everything's always going to be hybrid or in person is dead. And I think we all sort of eventually came to the realization that like none of those are true and all of them are true. Like we have to be honest like brutally honest sometimes about what the audience that we are working with on every single particular event needs and how they will engage. And that's the answer. And I don't think we were ever really thinking about that before. It was just like, we do live events. Maybe some people were thinking about that, but I think we got a lot better at being able to have that conversation because we had more options to offer. Absolutely. And again, I emphasize and agree with you that it's that listening to the audience and what they need, which, you know, if you're doing that, you can create a really good strategy and a really good sort of, this is a very Canadian expression, but a tickle trunk full of things that you can do. A tickle trunk? A tickle trunk. It's from Mr. Dress Up when I was a kid. He had a trunk that he would pull costumes out and he called it the tickle trunk. So very Canadian things. I'm going to add that to the list of movie and TV references that Jody doesn't get. And okay, anyone gotcha. that knows me knows that I don't get most of them. <laughs> yeah. So when we met, you were the incoming or you were on the board of ILEA. And I just want to briefly touch on your time there because eventually you were the president. Yay, Jody. 
So what was the main draw that kept you involved in the association? What was, you think, your greatest achievement while you were part of that organization? Well, I think that the main draw for me changed a lot over the years based on kind of where I was at career-wise. And I was able to find ways for my involvement in ILEA to shift and change and adjust based on where I was at. And so when I first joined ILEA, I was new to the industry. I didn't know anybody. I was literally just looking for people, my people, like where are the people that I need to know if I'm going to do this professionally? How do I get connected? How do I meet the people that I need to know? I had lived in the Twin Cities for two years at that time. I didn't know anybody virtually outside of the company that I worked for. And I went to ILEA and I just felt like wrapped up in this group and I could very easily see how that group could provide the lanes that I needed to meet the people that I wanted to know. And my personality is such that I don't go halfway into anything. And by the third ILEA meeting I had been to, I was like, okay, I'm ready to get on the board. How do I do that? And they're like, maybe you should come to a few more meetings first. And learn a little bit more about this. And kind of serendipitously, shortly after that, someone that was on their board had to move. They were looking for somebody to backfill a very specific role. And they contacted me and were like, do you want to do this? And I jumped at it. And as I grew into those various roles that I was participating in, then it became very evident to me that my role in ILEA as a volunteer leader provided me with avenues to be able to sort of push on some boundaries and test some things and take risks and try things or do activities in the event space that I wasn't given the opportunity to do in my full-time job. I was pushing myself to do things that felt scary to me. I was given roles that I just frankly was not remotely qualified to have and had no business doing, but was like deeply 23-year-old confident at the time and was like, sure, I'll figure it out. And I've told people repeatedly and many, many times over the years, like Ilea changed the whole course of my career. It just, I feel pretty confident I would not be where I am without it. I put a lot of work into it. It was a full-time second job for most of my career, but I learned a lot. I learned how to negotiate. I learned how to consensus build at a table full of 13 very strong personalities and tackle like huge projects with big implications. And that's not to say I wasn't doing some of those things in my real job too, but the stakes were different and the types of activities were different. And that just gave me professional confidence that I really needed and was looking for. And I think would have been hard for me to find just in what I was doing in the place that was like signing my paycheck every day. So when we met, you were working for Osberg University and you were there for 12 years. 16 actually. 15? Wow. <laughs> yeah. They should have given you a big pin. What was it like to go from coordinating events for university to your current more brand-centric role at Greycliffs? Well, I had a job in between those two. I worked for a large national nonprofit in between. 
And I think there's so many similarities, to be honest. Planning events is not to dumb this down like substantially, but planning events at its core is universal as a skill set, regardless of whether you're doing that in a university or you're doing that in a large nonprofit or you're doing it in a corporate environment. The type writing a production schedule is the same and working with AV is the same. The budgets are different, admittedly. I think the university was unique in that it was part venue, part planner. So my team and I were managing 23 buildings on campus and all the spaces and all the stuff, more like a hotel or a venue. But we were also the lead planners on big events like commencement and homecoming and multifaceted, multidimensional. And what I think I gained from that experience is the ability to understand like the political landscape of working in a multi-dimensional organization or matrix-based type organization because there are so many stakeholders and so many things that you're trying to accomplish. That actually set me up really well to be able to navigate those types of conversations and competing priorities that exist within a corporate environment as well. They're not that different at the end of the day. Like my budgets at the university were certainly smaller, but I got really creative and I learned how to do a lot of things with the money that I did have. I built really good partnerships because of that. And I built long-term, long-standing relationships with organizations that I still work with. So I think I'm really glad I had that baseline environment to like learn and learn how to manage people and really make things work because I think I am better at my job now because of that. Yeah, absolutely. And so how does the sort of definition of value differ in that sort of academic environment versus the kind of industries that you work in now? As you said, you were sort of a venue and a planning team. And for the large-scale events that you were doing for commencement and homecoming and all of these things, those have a different value proposition to the audience than you would in sort of a corporate brand. So how does that differ in your mind? One of the things I realized over time working at the university is, in a lot of ways, the events department at a place like that is a loss leader. Like in most cases at the university, if we were charging registration fees, they were fairly small and the goals and objectives were rarely profit or revenue driven. They like, if you make money, great, but that's not what we were ever tasked with doing. They were relational. Like the events that we were involved with in almost all cases, were relationship-based and relationship-driven. And so they were about extending or better establishing relationships with current students, with prospective students, and helping them build those connections and build that sort of brand loyalty in a way to the university. Like That was what we were asked to do. And if that meant that we were investing money that we were not going to get back, there were times where there were decisions made by leadership that was like, it's fine. We're going to make that investment because it's really important to the end client in this case. 
things like commencement and the university that I specifically worked at was heavily first generation college students. And this was a milestone moment in their lives. And in many cases, the first student in their family that has gone to college, let alone graduated from college. And there's just investment that's made on the part of a university that like this is part of the life cycle of a place like this. Value in terms of that conversation is different. And that it is in the corporate environment sometimes. The role I'm currently in, we do a lot of business cycle events. And it is a key way that we converse with our franchisees. And yet the value proposition has to be there in a slightly different way. Like it is relationship based, but there is definitely more of a bottom line requirement from that regard. There's less willingness, certainly, to say like, yeah, the relationship investment is super important, but we can't lose our tail on it either. And there's almost always you need to balance these two things more readily. And I think there's more understanding or more willing to sort of invest in that differently at the university level, because that's just part of doing business is you have to graduate students like that. It just has to happen. So just a couple of minutes ago, you mentioned the politics of it all, which I'm going to use as a terrible segue to say about you're managing visits from people like the former president, Jim Carter, Senator Hillary Clinton. How has the way that you conduct and lead events with that kind of person influenced your attitude towards event production? I don't think it changed my attitude towards production a whole lot. Hillary Clinton is a person I'm going to put on stage. She's a very important person at that point in her career. We had the Dalai Lama at the university. Like The stakes are certainly higher. But at the end of the day, my responsibility as an event planner (laughs) to put on a high-quality production, whether it is the graduating class at a university and the student is speaking or it's Hillary Clinton speaking... I want that production to be as high quality as possible, regardless of who the person standing on stage is. What I will say is I think those experiences were sort of eye-opening in terms of expectations and sort of how to navigate. Because usually a person like Hillary Clinton is coming, but she's got 15 people that we're actually working with. And there's a lot of competing information and a lot of competing priorities and learning how to decipher like, what's the truth in this situation in terms of like, what actually has to happen here? What is the responsibility of me as a planner to provide? What is a nice to have? Those were conversations as you start to at least where I was starting to navigate the internal politics of like all these people that are advocating for their person. And then their person would come and be like, it's fine. It's totally fine. And you're like, oh my gosh. So at the end of the day, like I want the production to be flawless every time. I think the bigger learning for me was all that back end stuff around negotiating with the advanced people, really starting to read between the lines of like, 
what is it that they're actually asking for here? Because sometimes it wasn't particularly straightforward. Or they would ask for 25 things that I learned over time, like, actually, they're not going to use that. And so I would say it was more that type of learning than the other. It strikes me that that kind of experience teaches you that valuable lesson of interpretation. That's one of the things that I think newer planners or event professionals maybe get a little stressed out about, right? Is they get a rider, they get a requirement, and they're like, oh my God, I have to go get all these things, including the brown smarty. But after working on that kind of high level guest, I think it gives you an interesting perspective to interpret what that actual piece of paper means. And as you said, this is the must have, this is the nice to have, and how do we negotiate? Yeah. And the confidence to have the conversation with the advanced person that says like, I can't do that here, but here's what I can do. Does that work? How can we structure this differently so that it meets the requirements that we have here as an organization? Is there a middle ground we can find here? I think those types of negotiations and conversations, that was a big learning curve. And like you said, that hearing what they're saying, but not saying, I think that's a skill you develop over time, working with any types of groups, executives, anybody like starting to interpret what they're not saying. That's important by the way that they're saying other things (laughs) or the types of things that they're asking for indicating where their hot buttons and priorities lie is a skill that I think is really important to hone over time. (laughs) Hi there, Matthew here again. Great job making it to the middle of the episode. If you're enjoying what you're hearing right now, remember to give us a follow. And if you really like it, drop us a review as well. Let's get back to the episode. So being from an educational background, going through associations now in corporate, how do you describe giving value in events? Does it vary based on that audience or industry? Both. I think the value of an event is almost is largely in the eye of the person that it's attending it. Like I can declare that a thing has value that I have produced. And if the attendee says I got nothing out of that, was it valuable? Probably not. Or it wasn't as valuable as I thought it was. And so really understanding like what is valuable, like when this person who's attending leaves, what do they need or want to take with them that is valuable to them that will make them feel good or okay or happy that they invested their time, their energy, their money in our case, like pulling people off of the floor of a salon, like that costs them money. Like how do I make that experience of coming to an event valuable to them. And that could mean education in some cases. That means recognition opportunities in some cases. That means business updates in some cases. And being really respectful of how we are using their time so that we aren't asking too much of them, but that we're making good use of the time that we have with them. So I think that answer doesn't change whether I'm planning an event for university students and or their families. If I'm planning commencement, I want that event to feel 
positive and celebratory and like a good reflection of their time at the university and something that they will think back on positively. Like these are memories, like life milestones they're going to think about for their whole life. I want that experience to honor that. And when I worked for the medical organization, like we were helping people get bone marrow transplants. I needed to make sure that the information that we were providing was hitting the right people, that we were getting in front of the right people, and that we were respectful of their time. Because again, we're pulling them out of clinics. And I think if they're the ones that tell me if my event was valuable or not, and it's my responsibility to ask that and listen to what feedback they're giving me. Well, let's talk about that feedback and follow up. How are you measuring that and tracking that experience before, during, and afterwards to improve that value for your key audience in the future? If that was an easy thing to do, I would be a gazillionaire, I think, because it's probably the hardest thing to do well and consistently in our industry because I think value looks different potentially to every person in the audience (laughs) and very hard to get people to articulate why or if or how something was valuable to them. Even when you're surveying somebody and you're like putting together great surveys, sometimes you get feedback and you're like, I don't even know what to do with this. Like, I don't know how to read this. I don't know how to interpret this. I think that is the hardest part for sure. I think the best experience that I had with this was the medical organization. Like we were very diligent. We had very extensive surveying. We were tracking responses over time. We were pulling open-ended feedback out and looking for trends where it can be really easy in like open-ended survey content to find like that's an interesting answer or the people that are angriest or happiest are the ones that are providing most of the feedback. But really digging in and looking for like trends that we were finding in survey results, where if you start to bucket, like these answers are all sort of in this same vein about this thing. And we were able to pull out like these are things that we're seeing that are we need to address or these are things that we're seeing that's working really well and we should continue to do. I think that was the most impactful experience I had in really digging into the data to say, like, what are they actually telling me? Because like scaled surveys, I think, are so hard because you're like four, 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 four. That's how I take surveys. You're just like, sure, it was great. But if you're asking me for anecdotal feedback, I'll give it to you. But on my end, as a planner, that's really hard data to work with, right? Where you're like, what do I do with this? If I don't have the time to like, have somebody like literally dig in and give me results. It takes time. It takes a lot of time. But I think it was the most valuable experience I had in really understanding what was working and what wasn't. And they didn't always match. Like we would get decent responses on like a scaled question about a speaker. But then when you really got into the content, you were like, hmm, the speaker was good, but there were these issues that would help us pick an even better speaker next time. And so those kind of layering those two things together was 
a really interesting and valuable learning experience for me. After that experience and going forward, do you think that there are one or two key data points that you now pay attention to? Like you mentioned the scale, like one to four questions. Yeah, it was fine. I'm going to put you fours all the way through. But is there something in that experience that sort of jumps out at you now as this is a key metric that I'm going to look at? I think that depends on the event, not to take a sort of crappy way to answer that question. But I think the metric that's important probably varies a bit. And in those particular events that I was talking about, some of the things that I found really helpful to look at and that I've continued to use on some other events is like, what did you learn at this event that you are going to take back and implement in your job? And the variety of answers that we got to a question like that was interesting because we found out what was hitting, right? Like, this is resonating. We did not see that coming. Like, huh, 15 people all said they're going to take the XYZ back. And it was sort of a throwaway moment, but it landed. And so I found that to be a really telling question of where I would find out a lot more about what was happening in the content, which I think is sort of what we were going for, right? Like you need to know is your content landing. And that was a place where we were really seeing, I think, what people wanted or were was resonating. I really love that question and what it can tell you. Because from the mouth of babes, as it were, they're literally telling you what they found valuable and what they're going to take. And I think that's a brilliant data point to really look at. So we're talking at the end of 2023 right now. We're certainly talking about things in the industry like rising costs for common things like for everything. For everything. I'm trying to be delicate. And it's leading to bigger issues in the industry. And what do you think is really driving those rising costs, the inflation? We put up a post recently about the 2019 spend levels have returned. A lot of industry publications are talking about how that like, hey, we're back at 2019 levels. But what we've noticed in the data, and I don't know if you've seen this, is that the volume is down. So it's literally saying that everybody's spending just as much as they did in 2019, but they're getting less out of it. And so what do you think is really driving that? I'm not an economist, certainly. So my answer, like, I don't know. But I will say, Everything that I buy personally is also more expensive. And so I think it's easy to get wrapped up in like, all my events are just so much more expensive. And why is everything that I'm buying here so much more expensive? Like everything we're doing everywhere. Like my grocery bill is more expensive. My homeowner's insurance is more expensive. The economy and the inflation rate and the way that the economic system works is driving the costs to be what they are. Like, duh, right? Like, of course they are. I think the part of the double whammy of that is because it costs so much more in things like hotels and airlines, less people are coming to the events. Their other events are not happening because of that. And so you're getting hit on both sides, right? Like the events that are happening cost a lot more. The events that you would like to have or that you can't afford to have 
people aren't coming in as great of numbers because it's too expensive to come. So I think it's not a simple answer. Like, I wish it was as simple as just like, everybody's just charging us more because they can. Like, maybe there's some of that. There probably is some of that. I don't think that's the universal truth. I think the universal truth is, I just had this conversation with someone the other day, and they're like, well, the last time we had this event was in 2018, and the food and beverage budget is this. Why do you have this much budgeted? And I was like, because it's 2024 now. And I would imagine the times and the ways that we were being charged are just different. They just are. And so I think the also double whammy of all of this is we are referencing budgets. And I'm doing a lot of this right now. It's like the last time this event happened in this format was 2018 or 2019. And it hasn't been the same since COVID. And now we're just finally getting back to what we're used to. And looking at the budgets, you're like, why does this cost so much more? Well, it's six years later. It would cost more regardless. Yeah. Even if it was just natural inflation, three or 4% year over year. Yeah. It's been six years. So three times six is not like you've got at least a 10% inflation raise over that period. And then of course you add limited supply and all those kinds. So while you were speaking, all I could think of is Martin Short in Father of the Bride walking in and saying, you know, welcome to the 2020s. You know, like there's a certain aspect of that. I agree with you that there is a small percentage of the industry that's just charging more for the sake of charging more, but there are economic realities. And I don't know if you agree with this statement, but it feels like the industry Going back to what we first talked about at the beginning of this, where when we were in school, there was no event industry. It was just nobody knew you could do this for a living. We've come such a long way in the industry that we are now part and therefore subject to the greater economy. Oh, I think that's so true. One of the things that I was really involved in during my time with ILEA was this conversation around like professionalism of our industry. And that's a weird way to say just like, how do we get people to take us seriously? Right? Like, how do we get people to stop saying like, oh, you party planners, you're so cute, like, go do your thing. But like, no, marketing organizations within major fortune 100 and 500 companies are spending massive dollars on experiences and live events. And we have to start behaving in such a way that we can step into that and function like some of the other types of industries that they're used to working with in the other types of marketing activities that they're doing. And that was, I think, always going to be uncomfortable for the events industry because of the way that we've grown up and we're still pretty young and in our infancy as an industry. And a lot of our people fell into this. We were pulled out by the bootstraps and figure out how to get it done and we'll make it happen. And yes, 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 yes. And suddenly you're like, oh, wait, I have to make money. And I just think that all has started to shift in really substantial ways. I think companies are driving some of that. And yeah, I think it's going to continue as we continue to come into our own as a profession instead of just a group of people that are putting on live events. Like this is a profession that you 
can do now. And like, what does that look like? And what does that mean? And how do you have those conversations? And how do you price accordingly? And how can you price accordingly? Yeah, absolutely. It's one of those subjects that's going through the industry right now about the value, not giving away creative for free, pricing appropriately. And as I said just earlier, I think it's about the industry growing up and finding its real place from like you and I have lamented over a drink at a conference many a time about being called party planners and being called this sort of off the side of your desk kind of industry, whereas now it's matured a lot. It still has a lot of growing pains, but I think it's certainly matured a lot. And the crazy thing is, like, I've been involved in this conversation where I've had this conversation. I mean, global event forums that we did with ILEA in 2014, 2015, long ago. But we were having that conversation then. Like, how do we do this? How do we advocate for this to be different? And in many ways, like, I'm happy that that's happening. Like, I want what I do to be viewed that way and to have that sort of standing, it does come with some less ideal side effects, right? Like, stuff costs more money now. (laughs) 100%. Yeah. Yeah. So the last thing I want to touch about is I found this quote really interesting. I think you had an interview with Campaign Live and you're quoted as saying, with technology being what it is in this rapidly changing world, it's impossible to get away from disruption. So what specific tech is causing that disruption and how are you working around that? Everything. Literally, I walk around with an Apple Watch now and that quote was probably from 2015 or 2016. And facing your phone, you're on your laptop, you're bombarded on TV, like you can't go anywhere. I don't even know the data, but it's some like crazy amount of times a day that you're hit with stuff and information and it's a lot and you're trying to siphon through in your head like what's valuable in this and how do I stay focused and all of those things and as a professional that brings its own set of I have to like stay focused as an attendee it's even harder because you go to an event and you're not just walking into a ballroom and learning, right? Also, your work is calling you and texting you and emailing you and your watch is dinging and someone's cell phone is ringing in the back of the room and you're thinking about what you're going to watch on TV and like all of that stuff. And I just think that is a lot to contend with when you're trying to create an experience that is curated and specific and deliver on some really needed things, there's so much happening that you don't have control over. And that crowd control thing is exponentially harder because you don't have their entire focus. You're never going to have their entire focus or very rarely. And it just means that it's that much harder to for those messages to land. And it's that much harder for them to absorb the value that they want and that you're trying to provide. And I just think that's hard. It's the reality. It's life. I think there's a lot smarter people than me studying this and that are trying to figure out how to fix that. But I think it's real for sure. And as you were saying that, I was remarking that when we do sales kickoff meetings or sales meetings with organizations, 
we always sort of have to plan for little pod spaces for their sales people to get up in the middle of the speech and go deal with the client. Because the reality is that, I mean, you're spending three days in Vegas with your team to do like the one team thing happening where you're all getting on the same page for the mission for the next year. But at the same time, like business is still going. <laughs> yeah, this is still going. And how much is that exasperated over the rise of remote work? Being a remote worker, the separation of church and state from your work and your life balance is getting muddied. And that sort of carries over into when they attend events and they are sitting there going, my laptop was still on my lap in my living room in this conference center and maybe in the office for one of my working pods. So that technology disruption is still happening at a greater scale these days. All right. So we're running out of time. So I always like to do at the end of these episodes is ask you to tell our listeners who are event professionals, event marketing professionals, what practical thing can they do right after listening to this episode? And what I'd like to ask you to do is think of the people who are just sort of entering the industry, either through some educational institution or like us, they you know woke up one day and somebody said, you could do this for a living. I'm really excited. What do you think that person should do to get started? Good question. Well, the first thing that I would say is similar to what David told me a long time ago. The most valuable thing that you will have in this industry, in my opinion, is the network of people that you work with. I can't do what I do successfully without exceptional partners that care about my business and my event as much as I do. And the most important good advice that I've been given is invest in those relationships and be a good partner. Like, as a planner, it is my responsibility also to be an equal good partner in those relationships. And in whatever way that you can, as early as you can, start building those relationships and take the time when you're having those conversations for it not always just to be about the bottom line and the dollars and the cents and the order, like learn who these partners are as humans and as people and what makes their lives easier and what I as a planner can do to make this partnership better and ask those questions because I sometimes don't know what I don't know. And if I'm putting a lot of time and effort into something that is just deeply invaluable or causing more work on your end, I want to know that because I want to change what I can. I can't always change those things, but I want to be able to if I can. And I don't know. And the partner isn't always going to tell me because sometimes it's scary. This is a client. They're paying me money. I just need to say yes. So I take it upon myself to ask those questions and to be a good partner. So that's one thing. The second thing that I would say is just be a learner. I think the best thing that I've done throughout my career is just say yes to opportunities where it was scary and I didn't know the answer, but it gave me the opportunity to be around people that I could learn something from. And the truth is, like, even 25 plus years in, 
every time I go to a conference, I can have a conversation with someone that's done something that I haven't done that I learned something from. And I have to be like gracious and self-confident enough to be able to say, like, I'm not going to know everything. And it's in my best interest to be open to those learning opportunities wherever they come from. And that might mean getting involved in an association if I know that they're not everybody's thing, but they're valuable if you use them well. Go to meetings to meet with people that do things you don't know how to do well and ask good questions. Use their time well. Most people are very willing to help you learn if you're gracious and willing to ask those questions. A little bit of that earlier in your career, man, that will set you up so well, at least in my opinion. Absolutely. Okay. So where can people find you if they want to reach out after hearing this episode? Yeah, I'm on LinkedIn. You can search me on there. It's Jody, J-O-D-I, at Colin, C-O-L-L-E-N. That's an easy way to connect with me. I'm on all the social medias. It's usually at Jody Colin, all one word. You can email me, jody.colin at greatclips.com. That's my current email address. I would be happy to chat. I love talking to young people, especially probably comes with my 16 years of working in a university, but I love working with young people. So very happy to have those conversations if there's interest. Excellent. Well, thank you very much, Jody, for joining me today. And I can't wait to hang out with you at another ILEA event. Looking forward to it. Thanks for having me. Production Value Matters, the business event podcast, is brought to you by Burn Production Services. To find out more about Burn Production Services and how putting on events can drive value for your business, visit burnproductionservices.com. Make sure to click subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. And on behalf of the team here at Production Value Matters, thank you so much for listening.